and welcome to Checked Out. We're broadcasting from Euclid Public Library in beautiful Euclid, Ohio. I'm Casey Armstrong, Director of the Library. And I'm Mike Stein, Assistant Manager of Adult Services. We talk about our favorite books, movies, services, and events with our favorite people and our favorite community. Each podcast will feature a theme. Today, we're talking to our special guest, Amy Breslin, Outreach Librarian for the Lorraine Public Library System and a member of Ohio Progressive Asian Women's Leadership. Amy, welcome to Checked Out. Thank you for inviting me to speak on your podcast today. Uh, so it's true, I am a librarian for the Lorraine Library System, um, but I would like to preface our conversation by saying just that the thoughts that I'm sharing with you today are my own and do not represent the library system. Um, I also want to say that my perspective and my opinions are limited through my own personal experiences. Uh, and again, do not speak for all AAPI communities. So I am a member of OPAL, Building AAPI Feminist Leadership. It is a grassroots community that organizes for social justice and elevates the voices, visibility, and progressive leadership of Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander women and non-binary folks in Ohio. By co-creating and organized an intersectional feminist member-led community, we're building collective power. And we do this through community building, art, and storytelling, political education, and organizing campaigns. We believe that our approach at OPAL uh, to building collective power will allow AAPI folks in Ohio to grow and transform ourselves, change the dominant narratives and institutions, and take visible leadership in progressive social movements in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color. So how long has this organization been around? How long have you been part of it? Just give us a little bit about background of your organization. So OPAL, it's a fairly new organization. We really like just hit the ground running um, with the pandemic. I think that the isolation and the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes that has occurred simultaneous with the pandemic has caused a lot of AAPI folks to seek out community and seek out solidarity, seek out visibility. And so because of that, OPAL has significantly grown in membership. Um, and I joined as a member last year. Uh, I joined after learning about them on social media and I participated in their um, like fellowship for liberation um, to help develop my organizing skills. So Amy, is there a website that we can refer folks to so they can learn more? Yes, yeah. So our website is OP as in Paul, A as in Apple, W as in water, L as in lion.org. So it's opal.org. Thank you. So you briefly mentioned um, some of the violence and the hate crimes that the Asian American community have been addressing lately, but this isn't new. I, as an African American woman, I very much know that racism is very real in America, has a long, strong history. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the past experience of um, Asian Americans and then let us know what's going on today? What what are some of the issues that uh, the community is facing today? As some of the listeners may already be aware, the API community, um, we experienced a really 
painful anniversary, um, which marked one year after eight women, six of whom were East Asian, uh, were shot and killed by a white man in Atlanta, Georgia. And that event really brought the experiences um, and the violence that AAPI folks have been facing uh, front and center into the mainstream media. But as you had mentioned, uh, AAPI folks have been experiencing violence and racism since long before the pandemic. Um, and the killings and the violent acts haven't stopped either uh, since that incident last year. More lives have been taken. Uh, for example, just last week, an elderly Filipino woman was punched 125 times while being called racial slurs. Um, so, so, so back to your question. Um, so what are AAPIs facing today? So to start, and this is kind of complicated, right? Because this is a long, it's a long history and it's a long time in the making. Um, it was very clear from the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic that AAPI folks were going to be scapegoated. Uh, the former president repeatedly referred to this coronavirus strain as the China virus and Kung flu. Um, and that scapegoat, scapegoating has directly resulted in this increase in violence and racism that we're experiencing now. Between March 2020 and December 2021, Stop AAPI Hate tracked over 10,000 hate crimes committed against AAPI folks. And the organization AAPI Data has suspected that even that number is a severe underestimate because AAPI men are less likely to report when they have been victims of hate crimes. Um, according to the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, 74% of AAPI folks report having experienced racism in the last 12 months. Um, and sadly, this, this isn't just limited to adults. Kids are experiencing anti-AAPI hate too. Since the pandemic began, Asian American youth have reported higher instances of being bullied in school for their race or ethnicity, and just overall experiencing poor mental health. So while the scapegoating has been the trigger for the rise in the anti-AAPI violence for right now, um, I do think it's important to remember that scapegoating only works the way the oppressor intended it to when a foundation of dehumanization and othering has already been firmly established and has been enduring. Asian Americans have been in the United States for more than 170 years, yet common stereotypes and myths persist. What will it take to change this? Asian Americans have been in the U.S. for close to 200 years, just like you said. Um, but before I get into what what the common stereotypes myths are, I think that it needs to be addressed that we are not a monolith. Um, AAPI communities are very diverse in terms of migration patterns, languages, education, religion, geography, citizenship and nativity, skin color, uh, class, et cetera. 
And for example, the stereotypes of South Asian diaspora as compared to East Asian diaspora and Southeast Asian or Central or West Asian diaspora do vary widely. Um, but if I had to narrow down to the stereotypes or misconceptions that sort of like transcend the diversity of AAPI communities, it would be the model minority myth. So the model minority stereotype presents this like glowing image of AAPI communities that in spite of historical racism, they've become relatively successful and an uncomplaining minority deserving to serve as a model for other minority groups. Um, we all know, right, like a really common characteristic of the model minority stereotype um, is that model minorities are extremely hardworking and academically high performing. So I'm going to take a minute to break down the model minority myth, because I think that sometimes when people hear it, they'd think like, well, that's not such a bad stereotype. But it is rooted in white supremacy and its implications are very harmful. So first, the model minority myth homogenizes all AAPIs into one monolithic group. So that masks the unique problems among the diverse AAPI communities. It lumps all AAPI ethnic and diaspora groups together, um, it, their experiences and successes of the most visible communities hide the experiences of the less visible communities. So what happens is it prevents AAPI communities from having access to the resources and the assistance that other marginalized BIPOC communities might have access to. So for example, this can appear as an Asian student who isn't receiving the academic support or the help that they need in subjects where their ethnicity is stereotyped as being naturally gifted. Um, on top of homogenization, the model minority myth also creates a wedge between AAPI communities and other BIPOC communities. And I think we can all agree this is really problematic. It implies that there are like good minorities and problem minorities. Um, and obviously we can see how this division within BIPOC communities is essentially what preserves white supremacy. Um, you know, so model minority stereotypes suggest that if we all just keep our heads down and work hard, we'll all be successful. Well, that idea hurts all of us because anyone who doesn't fall in line with the AAPI model minority example is then somehow deserving of the prejudices against them. But the model minority stereotype is also the very reason that so few AAPIs are in positions of executive leadership. And then finally, the real key problem with model minority myth is that it gives the impression that AAPI don't face discrimination or racism. So on one hand, then, you know, that results in having AAPI communities who are excluded from the racial discourse. And then on the other hand, this invisibility results in AAPI folks facing violent attacks, which we're seeing today, um, but not always having access to the resources, the advocacy or the support that they need. So I think it's important to understand that this model minority myth uh, creates invisibility um, and to consider it um, when assessing like, what are the unique issues that AAPI women and femmes are facing? Um, along with that, AAPI women are continuously 
fetishized and hypersexualized. This objectification of AAPI women has been going on for nearly 200 years, and it precipitates this racialized, gendered, and sexualized violence that we're seeing happen um, in, in the media almost every day now. Um, and then last, you know, there's the forever foreigner stereotype. So as far back as 1895, when the U.S. citizen Wong Kim Ark was told to go back to his country, you know, until as recently as today, that's still happening, where AAPI folks are being told that they do not belong. Uh, we perpetually have our language, nativity status, our citizenship, and our very humanity questioned. I mean, I don't know a single AAPI person who doesn't get asked, where are you from? I have literally out on the reference floor had library users interrupt me to say that they wanted to see someone who speaks English after I've already started speaking to them in English. You know, and I think we've all been told to go back to our own country before. And it's this level of dehumanization and this othering that allows so many people to feel that they can freely attack an API person. So back to your question. Um, so what will it take to change this? <laughs> I think that there needs to be accountability of systems and structures. Uh, when we consider the violence faced by AAPI women and femmes, um, if we don't hold the institutions accountable, then we're all failing ourselves. We need to critically evaluate and challenge the imperialist and misogynistic structures that resulted in the War Brides Act and the use of AAPI women on U.S. military R&R facilities. Um, we need to have better immigration policies and labor rights that protect AAPI workers. We need culturally competent and language accessible services across the systems. That includes healthcare, employment, and housing. We need community-led solutions where resources are being invested into community organizations that are co-constructed by stakeholders working to build community infrastructure and resilience. We also need community programming that supports cross-cultural dialogue as well as intersectional, intergenerational community building. Um, and we need more bystander intervention training programs um, to be made available and accessible to the general public. And in general, um, I think it's really important that people are being educated about AAPI history and contributions because we can't dispel the misconceptions and the stereotypes in the media if folks are not educating themselves about where these narratives are coming from and how they impact the power and agency of AAPI communities. Um, so positive visibility that shows the humanity and the intersectionality of AAPI communities is desperately needed. And we can advocate for more positive visibility in the media, but we can also increase visibility through that intersectional intergenerational community building. Wow, Amy, it's really a lot. I'm just trying to digest everything that you're telling us. I was just um, taken aback when you mentioned um, that a patron would ask you where you're from and, and they would actually say those words to your face. So that's horrifying to hear. Um, you were mentioning a lot about what you guys, in response to Mike's question about what it will take to change things. 
are these specifically actions that your organization is taking? And you specifically mentioned storytelling. That was one of the tools that you guys were using to help affect change. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so yes, to answer your question, the solutions that I had suggested that you know we believe will help to affect change um, and to you know sort of break down this model minority myth and to also um, disrupt the violence that we're seeing right now against the AAPI communities. Those are solutions and those are actions that OPAL is currently taking. Some of them are also actions that I think public libraries could have a greater role in um, in the future. And we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but yes, yeah, storytelling, I think, is really important. Storytelling, it places the agency back on the person, right? And I think that that's incredibly, incredibly important. It's empowering, it's healing, it creates visibility, it allows us to build unity um, and solidarity with each other. And storytelling is an art form. And I think that, you know, it's no secret that the AAPI communities widely, I would say across probably most of the AAPI communities historically and culturally value oral storytelling as a way for not only um, preserving their history, preserving their narrative, but also co-constructing and co-creating their community identity. Um, Apala, which is the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association, they have a grant project um, that's called Talk Story. And the idea with Talk Story is that through this community storytelling, through oral storytelling, we find healing in ourselves, but then we also build collective power and we do it together as a community. And I think that's really beautiful. And I think there's a lot of power that can come from that. So you just mentioned something uh, along the library world. We're all librarians here working in libraries. Uh, have you seen anything locally that libraries are doing to help? Uh, what suggestions do you have that they could do to help with this? Why don't I first tell you a little bit about some of the things that Opal has been doing that I think the library can also adopt in terms of their programs and services. As our members have been, as we've all been navigating this racial and gender-based violence um, and experiencing collective trauma and grief, Opal has provided these like intentional spaces for healing and processing and storytelling, like we just talked about. And, and I think that this is really, really important. I think that places and spaces for healing um, and processing are incredibly important to the solidarity, the community building, and us just being able to get through this. With that in mind, I think that something that public libraries can do 
is to create spaces where they're centering the voices and the work of the agencies and the organizations that are already doing this work to fight racism, right? Organizations like OPAL, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, um, Stop AAPI Hate, and that sort of thing. Like, and bringing in those organizations um, to facilitate healing, um, transformative, and like processing and creative spaces for AAPI community members. OPAL has also been, uh, we've been using our platform to uplift and advance long-term policies and solutions that address the root causes of racial violence uh, and that are perpetuated by misogyny, white supremacy, capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, um, basically all these interconnected forms of systemic violence. And one policy item that OPAL has been advocating for, uh, which I think libraries are uniquely positioned to support, is for the inclusion of AAPIs and other BIPOC groups in Ohio K through 12 curricula. And wait, wait, wait. I'm not sure. I'm sorry, Amy. I just want to understand. So when you're saying that, are you meaning that we currently, Ohio does not currently have a requirement to um, require some type of education in our curriculum about AAPI communities? No, at this time, unfortunately, there is not a requirement in any public school curricula across the United States with the exception of New Jersey and Illinois, where Asian American history is a graduation requirement in public K through 12 schools. Illinois and New Jersey, just recently, Illinois sometime, I think last fall, and then New Jersey just earlier this year, both passed passed legislation uh, which would require Asian American history to be taught in their schools. And so in Ohio, we've been advocating for a similar type of legislation to be passed here, um, but it's stuck in committee. So we're trying to mobilize and activate libraries and, and schools and you know our, our friends and our colleagues across the professions to to um, help organize and to push that movement forward. I think that is uh, interesting, Amy, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's gonna go into my question about community because I think a lot of us make assumptions about what folks are learning in school or not learning in school based on what our experience was growing up. so thank you for sharing that. It's, that wasn't something that I really realized. Um, how can we, <laughs> the collective we, come together as a community to fight more against hate and racism? And you mentioned you gave us some great tips there, but I think there's this um, this gap and we all kind of stay siloed, unfortunately. You know, when I think about the black community, you know, like the NAACP and all of the organizations and 
Um, if there's a rally, you know, I immediately know if there's been a police shooting and this African-American kid, I know about it. So how can we together do better and, and help support all, all members of our community so that no one is getting attacked, no one is getting hurt and treated differently? So I'm really glad that you asked that question. Um, as public libraries, we strive to be the third place in the community, right? You know, we strive to be a safe space for all. And it's sad to say that like sometimes, sometimes that's not 100% true, right? Um, and so I think that what is really like kind of raw and beautiful though, is that libraries are so uniquely positioned to collaborate with these different like AAPI or BIPOC community groups to facilitate cross-racial dialogue and cross-cultural understanding. Um, and really, I think libraries are so uniquely positioned to facilitate intersectional, intergenerational community building, which I think is so important if we're going to build solidarity, um, build community to leverage our collective power. Um, and I also think that public libraries, particularly those with outreach service departments, are uniquely positioned to connect AAPI community members and other BIPOC community members with a wide variety of resources um, in collaboration with those same community organizations and groups. So, you know, I think libraries love to be able to be like the hub, right? Um, and, and public libraries love to be like an information resource center. And I think that that positions libraries or public libraries, especially, um, in a way where we can help to build community infrastructure, build that social infrastructure and to, um, empower our members, our users and our stakeholders. I also think that public libraries are uniquely positioned to facilitate like civic engagement. And, and I think we've said that for a really long time, but in an effort to be quote unquote neutral, I think that sometimes public libraries have fallen a little bit silent. I think that we're, you know, we're at a, an interesting point. We're at a crossroads right now here in Ohio. We have two curriculum regulation bills on the table, House Bills 322 and 327. And as librarians um, and library administrators, we need to be calling our superintendents, our school boards, our policymakers about how harmful those bills are to educators, librarians, and students. We could be utilizing our meeting spaces to um, raise the public discourse about what's actually going on and what does this really mean? And then what would the effects be? Because at the end of the day, our silence isn't neutral. It is complicit, you know? And then again, just relating to that like civic engagement piece, because libraries are so well positioned for advocating for things like um, supporting school curricula, right? And so we want to see AAPI history taught in our public schools. You know, I also think that libraries are well positioned to create spaces where 
intergenerational communities and intersectional communities are coming together to have open discourse and dialogue. So that way we can advocate for companion legislation in solidarity with communities of color so that all of our communities of color are being given their fair justice in the school curricula. Because right now that's not happening. It's, it's, it's not happening for indigenous folks. It's not happening for Latinx folks. And, and even though like we claim that it's happening for um, black and African-American folks, it's, it's, Again, it's still whitewashed, right? Yeah, and that's why I kind of mentioned that depending on where you went to school. <laughs> um, I happened to go to a Cleveland school that um, went to Martin Luther King. My the school name was Martin Luther King High School, School of Law and Public Service. So I was in a what was called at the time a magnet school. We spent a lot of time in class talking about the law and the, when you talk about the law, you end up talking about a lot of different communities in America and how the law impacted them. So that's how I got my my little bit of knowledge about the Asian American community um, and again, African American community. But had I not gone to that particular school, I doubt I would have gotten that type of um, those types of classes. So we usually ask this question of about all our guests. I feel a lot more confident asking you as a librarian this one. Are there any books you can recommend reading to learn more about all this? Yes, of course. <laughs> so um, before I give you my book list, I just want to make a real quick plug. So during the 2020 and 2021 uh, committee year, the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association created a comprehensive rubric for evaluating AAPI youth literature. And so one more piece that I think that libraries can be doing, and this is both for public libraries and for school libraries, um, conduct a diversity audit. And we've done a diversity audits in the past, right? Um, but in the past, usually our diversity audits contain at least one checkbox and it's just, you know, Asian American or it's AAPI. But I want to encourage you um, to use the Apollo rubric while you're conducting your diversity audit and disaggregate the AAPI collection. Because when you disaggregate the collection, you'll be able to see which communities are hyper visible and which communities are invisible, you know? Um, and I think that we should be assessing these stories for stereotypes, nuance, agency, racism, and intersectionality, because just having a certain number of books on the shelf isn't quite enough anymore. So with that being said, I have a few books that I wanna recommend. I was previously a children's librarian before I was an outreach librarian. So I have some suggestions here for youth, um, and you might even see a bit of a youth bias <laughs> in, my, in my book choices, but I also like to recommend youth books right now anyways, while we're still advocating for um, the Senate Bill 214 um, and trying to show how we can, we can teach Asian American and Pacific Islander history in schools. And there are resources, there are materials out there. Uh, so the first book is I Am an American, The Wong Kim Ark Story. Um, it is a nonfiction picture book that addresses the Chinese Exclusion Act. 
So it addresses scapegoating and kind of sets the stage for like one of the earliest forms of systemic violence and systemic racism that we saw against Asian Americans. We Are Not Free by Tracy Chi. It's a fiction YA novel. It does an excellent job of humanizing the Japanese Americans who were incarcerated. Again, addresses scapegoating and systemic violence against Asian Americans. Dawn Raid by Pauline Smith is a middle grade chapter book about a mixed race Samoan girl whose family joins the Polynesian Panthers amid the Dawn Raids in New Zealand. Now, Dawn Ray depicts racial violence and white supremacy and scapegoating as a broader issue, issue beyond the U.S. So even though it doesn't take place in the U.S., I love this story um, because, A, like scapegoating and white supremacy are issues largely correlated with U.S. and European imperialism. But I also think that it's important to show how kids of that age have like this hyper awareness of what's going on in the news and you know, how they are empowered and how they can be a part of that collective action. The Sympathizer and The Committed, right? They're both super famous. We've all heard of them um, by Viet Tan Nguyen. Uh, they're fiction books for adults and they take a very critical perspective on US imperialism um, and the like military industrial complex from the perspective of a cultural insider. I do think that's important. From a whisper to a rallying cry, the killing of Vincent Chin and the trial that galvanized the Asian American movement by Paula Yu is a nonfiction YA chapter book that goes into great detail about anti-Asian scapegoating and violence surrounding the American auto industry using accessible text and structure that makes it you know, readable for teens as well as adults. I'm almost done, I promise. Maisie Chen's Last Chance by Lisa Yi is a middle grade chapter book about a contemporary Asian American kid who's learning about the racism that her ancestors faced um, and the scapegoating that her ancestors faced, meanwhile also navigating hate, crime, hate crimes in present time. Palimshast by Lisa Ulrim Shoblam. It is a graphic memoir that challenges intercountry Asian adoption um, and it, the intercountry Asian adoption complex and kind of defies the dominant narrative. I think this is important to bring up just because uh, transracial intercountry Asian adoptees are so often excluded from the broader AAPI narrative. Um, and the last one is The Making of Asian America by Dr. Erica Lee. Um, it's a really incredible, comprehensive book. Um, it's a nonfiction book for adults. And I'm super excited because Christina Sunternbach, who was the author of the Newberry Honoree, A Wish in the Dark, um, she will be co-writing the adaptation for young people. And of course, if you're looking for additional recommendations, you know, I always encourage folks to check out the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association Literature Awards at apoloweb.org. Um, and of course, you can also check out their storefront, which has even more books in bookshop.org. All right. Well, that's an amazing list. And I am going to check some of those out. Amy, thank you so much for coming and helping us to learn more about the issues faced by the AAPI community. Before we log off today, can you tell us any, is there anything else that you want us to know 
about um, American Asians or American Pacific Islanders? If the library is interested in offering um, bystander intervention training, there's a great one from Right to Be. They were formerly known as Hollaback. Um, of course, I always recommend Apala, Asian Pacific American Librarians Association. If you have AAPI folks who are a part of your library workforce, I encourage them to become a part of our membership. I also strongly encourage folks to, if they're looking for resources, particularly if they're interested in supporting their local educators and their schools as they face these curriculum challenges, um, to reach out to the Asian Americans Advancing Just Justice. They have a list of resources and toolkits uh, specifically for educators on their website uh, because they were one of the key movement organizers who helped to pass the legislation in the state of Illinois. And I think that the overall thing is that like, while it might feel, everything might feel really overwhelming and really stressful right now, um, but there are things that we can do, you know, whether you're an ally or whether you identify as AAPI, you know, if we continue educating ourselves, we can learn from the historical social movements um, that have affected change in the past. And when we think about those things, we can model after those great activists in the past to build solidarity um, and to build our collective power and to affect change. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Checked Out. That was Amy Breslin, a member of Ohio Progressive Asian Women's Leadership and an outreach librarian for the Lorraine Public Library System. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. And now, the news you cannot use. If you want to learn about UFOs, head to the Barack Obama Presidential Library on Chicago's South Side. The library, still under construction as part of the Obama Presidential Center, has stocked 3,440 pages and nearly 27,000 electronic files possibly related to the existence of unidentified flying objects, according to John Greenwald Jr., creator of theblackvault.com. But if you do go looking for these documents, you might want to start planning your trip for well in the future. Greenwald said his request for the documents would be filled in 16 years. We might not have any government documents related to UFOs at Euclid Public Library, but we've got plenty of books and DVDs on the subject, which won't take you anywhere near 16 years to get a hold of. Thanks, Mike. If you want to know which novel set in a library that you should read next, head over to bookriot.com and take their library novels quiz. You'll get questions such as, do you prefer your libraries to be silent and studious or loud and full of activity? And which library would you prefer to visit, such as the Jedi Archives or the Citadel Library from the Game of Thrones? Based on your answers, Book Riot will suggest a book based in a library. My suggestion was The Platters by Un Soo Kim, about a private library owner who adopts an orphan and trains him as an assassin. It's a brand new book here at EPL and sounds right up my alley. And that's the news you cannot use. Thanks for listening to Checked Out. We hope you will tune in next time. You can learn more by going to our website at euclidlibrary.org.